Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 231 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us. This is our final show of the offseason. Next week, Monday, the season starts, and we couldn't be happier. This is our pitching preview, and we're going to start off strong. Chris was able to chat with SNY analyst, former Met, and uh, a guy I once bowled in the same room as, Nelson Figueroa, and they talked about pitching in the Mets for this coming season, so check that out. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is former Mets pitcher and current SNY studio analyst, Nelson Figueroa. Nelson, uh, welcome back on the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So the season is just around the corner. SNY has a nice full slate of coverage coming up on opening day. Uh, I know you guys are starting at 11.30 in the morning, giving everybody a nice extra long pregame. Will you be out there in the studio by the Apple at Citi Field on Monday? Oh, I wish we were going out to the game, uh, out to the field. We actually, because we are in these tremendous new studio here at uh, for World Trade Center. We're actually going to be showing off all our bells and whistles for the uh, opening day here at the uh, new studio. So excited to do that. Um, you know, it's different than what we've done in the past, and uh, I'm sure we'll get out to uh, the rotunda soon. Yeah, that's uh, – how's the move been generally? I mean, it sounds like, you know, just from things that we've seen as Mets fans that uh, – Things are exciting down there for everyone, and there's a, a versatility that maybe that didn't exist in the previous space. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, really we have a limitless um, studio features that we can do now. We can use the space a lot better. It's a, uh, one studio just exactly for Mets and Mets Productions. Um, we can just do uh, so many different things that we couldn't do before with the space. Uh, we, we're going to have more demos this year. We're going to have more uh, breakdowns this year. We're going to have a lot more, um, you know, both pre and post game able to do some things. We have new uh, graphic designs. Uh, just really trying to get SNY onto the uh, next level of things. I think we've been uh, top notch when it comes to regional sports and, uh, networks across the country. We finished, you know, first last last year and, and all of regional sports network networks. But I think uh, the goal is to even be bigger this year. And, uh, you know, you've got to kind of live up to uh, the product on the field. The Mets look to be exciting, and uh, we want to definitely find a way that we can portray that in our shows. Yeah, I was going to say we're looking forward to everything you guys are doing, and we're certainly looking forward to everything that the Mets are going to do. Uh, I guess the big question, are the Mets going to win the National League East? <laughs> uh, you know, it always comes down to health. I think we saw that the last two years with both the Mets winning in 15 and, you know, the Nationals winning in 16 came down to a question of health. Uh, these two teams are built as the uh, two heavyweights in the division. And uh, health is, you know, all the same. I looked at the Mets can outslug them. I think the Mets can also outpitch the Nationals, you know, both rotation and bullpen wise. Um, but it all comes down to health and, you know, who, who's going to have the most able bodies uh, come September to finish that fight off. 
Um, you know, it, it's kind of been disappointing because it's been decided relatively early uh, for both the division um, for the last two years. So I, I look forward to a uh, more of a knuckle crunch going into it. I, I want to see that kind of uh, battle because I think it's only going to make you stronger going into the next rounds of the playoffs. Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, at this point, we're just at the tail end of spring training. I think injury-wise, things have gone about as well as anybody might have expected for the Mets up to this point. Obviously, you would prefer that David Wright is healthy. Uh, you'd prefer that Steven Matz didn't have this hiccup late in spring training where he may not be on the opening day roster, depending on how his, uh, his elbow is doing. Uh, but Zach Wheeler's thrown well to the point that he's certainly at least made a case to make it into the rotation on opening day. Uh, so as someone who's been there as a major league pitcher, um, you know, I'm curious in those situations, and hopefully we don't have to talk about too many of them over the course of the season, but, you know, when you get into a spot like Matt's was in, what's the threshold what makes a player i guess report it to the team or seek out you know medical opinion and what doesn't well i mean when it's one thing for medical opinion uh, that, that's an mri situation you know and if it's that nature of, of debilitating uh, you know pain whatever it is discomfort and you get in an mri then there's cause for concern of course um you know he felt some irritation uh irritation sounds sounds very minor but when you're dealing with you know one of the key pieces of your rotation who's come off of elbow surgery you know you want to there's some cause for concern um he threw you know a flat ground today it felt great that's what everything has been reported that he felt really good today and felt strong um it's one of those things that they, they have to monitor him and i think it's just been frustrating to have to monitor steven Matz with kid gloves when you see how much talent is underneath you know you see all when he is able to pitch you know how well he's able to pitch and and, and really uh he hasn't been able to display that for long uh for long reaches throughout the season. We've had some short glimpses of it, and then all of a sudden, you know, something would flare up and he'd go down. And I think, you know, when you have four starters coming off of surgery, you knew there was going to be some bumps in the road in spring training. Um, this seems to be very minor, so it's a best-case scenario, I think, right now. And the thing is, is that the Mets have that depth at starting pitching um, that not a lot of teams have, especially starting out um, the season. You know, you're looking at right now, they were as deep as eight, nine starters, um, and Montero even, you know, getting a spot start here the other day went, you know, over five innings. That that really shows me something that these guys are are ready to battle out for the last two positions in that rotation. And you know, Stephen Matz is maybe seeing some of that writing on the wall that it's maybe not a spot that he can just think is always going to be there for him. He's going to have to figure out a way to stay on the field. Yeah. I, so in that kind of situation, you know, do I guess the psychology of what goes on with the player is something that just makes me curious. With Do you think that might make him internalize some of the concerns to, you know, maybe try to tough it out a little bit more and, you know, not be sidelined and have the spot taken from him? Or do you think, given the way things have gone, especially for the rotation as a whole for this team, is that – a secondary thing you know they're they're all very conscious of it nobody wants to get into a situation where they're going to right. you know miss months or a year 
Right. If you can, if you can kind of minimize it to missing, you know, skipping a start, then everybody's okay with that. Um, I, I think really he's been like that since the moment he signed. He had Tommy John soon after he signed. I think he's always kind of been in a situation where they've wanted him to be open and honest about how he's feeling. And almost to a fault, he has been very open and honest with every little ache and pain, every little thing that didn't feel a hundred percent and you know for a guy who has had to go through Tommy John uh, recovering from Tommy John you know you, you would think that there there's a certain threshold a pain threshold or a you know this is normal wear and tear kind of thing that he would be accustomed to but I think he's been brought up to be you know just blatantly honest with the coaching staff because they valued they do and they did value his arms so much coming up through the minor leagues that they wanted to make sure that this would be something that wouldn't be a problem at the major league level, but we're still seeing it at the major league level. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a very tricky thing because you want him to be open and honest, but at the same time he has to go out there and, and maybe not pitch at a hundred percent because none of us ever really gets the opportunity to pitch at a hundred percent since we were been in little league. actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, so you had mentioned Vontero, and he's an interesting guy. I think a lot of Mets fans were sort of perplexed when the Mets sent Gabby Yanoa to the Orioles just for you know cash considerations, basically clearing his spot on the 40-man uh, and keeping Montero instead. You know, Is there anything you saw? Because something that we've talked about a little bit on the podcast is you know, what could the potential baseball reason be, right? Uh, so is there anything you've seen with what those two pitchers have done uh, either in past years or what you're seeing from Montero so far here just in spring training that well I, well I really I'm really hoping that Montero has turned the corner finally I think uh, when you look at you know back in 2014 when it was DeGrom and Montero and they had to make a decision of who to keep in the rotation and who to put in the bullpen you know the Mets were very fortunate that they made the right decision with that one and and keeping DeGrom in the rotation Um, Montero has just always seemed to at the major league level during the season um, just nibble around the strike zone and put himself into trouble of having to throw fastballs and fastball counts and and you know having two guys on base because he walked two guys in two innings that that kind of thing it does not uh, it's not conducive to pitching winning baseball at the major league level and I think if you didn't learn anything from watching Bartolo Colon go out there and pitch with one pitch and throw a sinker 92% of the time and get out after out at the major league level at 43 years young, then you really wasted your time being his teammate. Um, you know, you look at Gaselman and Lugo and that short amount of time that they spent with him, they seem to get it, you know, rely on that sinker, rely on the ability to throw strikes with that sinker and have confidence with it and challenge hitters, you know, and, and we saw out of Montero, he was kind of pitching, you know, to, trying to avoid contact and all that does is put more people on base so that when the contact does come, it's hard contact, and then all of a sudden you're backing up bases, and you know you're giving up a ton of runs. So this spring, though, he's looked tremendous. He's been able to throw all three pitches in and out the strike zone, and I think that's the biggest key is you know when to throw it 
out the strike zone and in the strike zone. He was kind of getting ahead of batters, you know, when we saw last year, and then trying to throw that slider and to be right down the middle rather than being just off the corner and getting swings and misses. I mean, he's been tremendous this spring. I think he's leading, leading the team by a lot in strikeouts, and uh, it looks uh, as if he's finally turned the corner, and I think the Mets have that confidence because it has, there has been a lot of people in the front office and coaches who have said, you know what, this, this kid is still too talented. He's still too young to give up on, and I think that was it. He had a history with the Mets over the past you know, three seasons, and, and I think they still felt that there was more to get out of him. Right. Yeah, I know even though he you know, moved on to the job in football, I know Paul De Podesta was a very big supporter of Montero's, uh, you know, going back to being involved with signing him in the first place and then you know, as he was rising up through the minor league ranks. So hopefully – they're all, you know, that that opinion is right, and and hopefully, this is another guy who can go into the mix and really put the Mets in a situation where, you know, figuring out who's going to be stuck in the bullpen is a, a really great problem to have. Yeah, no, he's uh, definitely, um, you know, he's going to at least be in that bullpen, and he's a guy that you know you know you can get some you know innings out of and stretch him out if you need to. We know familiar suspension is coming down here in the next you know day or so, um, so they're, they're going to need someone to be able to eat up some innings early on um, in the season. And uh, Montero seems to be a guy that they're having some confidence in yet again. And, um, you know, for all the, the flack that he's taken and for, you know, uh, all the chances that he's been given, you know, it only takes, you know, making the most of that one opportunity and then never looking back to uh, stick in the major leagues and do something good. So one other guy uh, who's in the mix potentially for a starting spot, a bullpen spot to start the season, uh, Seth Lugo. He first made a name for himself, I, I would say, last year with the Mets just because the results were good, you know, kind of unexpectedly. Uh, everybody loved the story of a guy who came from, you know, the later rounds of a draft making it and then succeeding. Um, and then he really took another step, I think, in getting his name out there with what he did in the World Baseball Classic, uh, pitching for Puerto Rico, as you had done in the tournament. Uh, so... What what did you see from him, uh, both in that tournament? And I know there's really not been a lot of spring training time for him uh, in, in games with the Mets, but, you know, did that look like a pitcher who had grown from last season, the end of last season until this spring? I tell you, it definitely didn't look like a guy who had over a 6 ERA uh, pitching at the AAA level. Um, he's, you know, come up to the major leagues and kind of got comfortable in his own skin, uh, learned that, you know, his stuff was good enough to get major league hitters out. And um, that PCL is a beast. Uh, I've pitched there many a year. And as a pitcher, you know, the, the ERA can look gaudy, but, you know, it's, it's a matter of learning how to pitch and how to get outs. And, and you have to learn how to survive the, the big innings, you know, not giving up you give up a solo shot you can your team can survive that but if you put people on by walking them and by not making very good pitches 
you run into those, you know, four, five, six run innings, and that's what really tears up your ERA and, and your confidence. Um, his opportunity came at the big league level, and he really ran with it and pitched in some big situations for the Mets. And all we keep hearing about now is, you know, the tremendous spin rate of his curveball and uh, his ability to really never, you know, showing tremendous poise and, and, and not be overwhelmed by the big moments in the game with, you know, runners in scoring position. He finds way to, to pitch out of jams and you know while he's not a, a a big strikeout pitcher he gets weak contact and that's really I, I equate it to you know is two points is two points whether it's a layup or a slam dunk this guy's going to get you outs whether it's a strikeout or a weak ground ball I'm looking for weak contact I'm looking for outs and he, he does that in tremendous fashion and pitching in a huge stage like the WBC I mean 51,000 people um, and that uh, you know, all-star lineup that you will never face during the season. Um, you know, he held his own out there, and he learned again. You make a mistake over the middle of the plate, you pay for it. But he was able to strike out seven in that short amount of time that he was in that game, so that should show him that he has the ability to get swings and misses when he needs them. Yeah, that that combination would really be uh, a welcome step forward. You know, like you said, if he could succeed just doing the things that he's already shown, that's great. Uh, adding more strikeouts to the mix certainly can't hurt. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's nice to be able to go into a season, you know, it's still sort of this foreign place uh, for a Mets fan. I think that especially if you, you know, I, I was young when the team was uh, like too young to remember when the team was at its peak in the eighties I was old mm-hmm. enough to enjoy the, you know, the 99, 98, 99, 2000 Mets. And, you know, certainly the success the team has had in getting to the playoffs, um, you know, in 2006 and then again these past two years. But the to do it multiple years in a row has been a relative rarity in, in terms of postseason play in this franchise's history. So, you know, is this opening day, given the context of everything, is this one that should be more exciting than the past two, you think? I don't even know about the past two. I think this is a, a extremely exciting time when you think of the window that's been opened over the past two years, the, the window of, of competing uh, for playoff, um, competing for supremacy in the division, competing for a chance to get back to the World Series and, and finish off the job. I think this team is – uh, you have to tip your cap to Sandy and the rest of the front office and ownership for saying, you know what, we're all in. This is it. This is uh, the, this team is. You see the names. Uh, I mean, I don't remember the last time I seen this many all stars um, on the same team in the same lineup together um, in Mets uniforms. Uh, you look at the pitching staff. If they can stay healthy, I mean, you're looking at guys that you know are the number six and seven in this Mets rotation that could easily be the three and four on any other major league team. Um, Tremendous confidence all the way around because it's no longer having that one veteran guy who did play in the world series or win a world series come in and say, Hey, we can do this. They've done this. They've been there. They've found ways to persevere through all the injuries last year. And when they go out there now, there's that quiet confidence that they all have. It's no, it's no longer the, you know, wondering if they belong, you know, it's how, how badly, can we, you know, how badly do we want to win? How badly do we want to take it to the next level and, and get past uh, three hours of playoff baseball? Three hours of playoff baseball isn't enough for a team like this. Yeah, yeah. That, and that avoiding 
one game playoff against Bumgarner would be uh, a, a desirable thing. However, the season shakes <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, when you look at these guys, I, a thought that I've had, I think, going into this year is that last year especially demonstrated, but even going back to some years past that the Mets had been in the playoffs, um, you know, 2006, the rotation wasn't fully healthy. Obviously, that wasn't the case last year. You know, how how tough is it for a pitcher to adjust over the course of a season, whether the Mets say, hey, we want to do, you know, a six-man rotation, uh, skip a start here and there, trying to keep guys fresh. Like, as long as things are going well and the team's com- competitive, um, just trying to keep guys fresh as they get to September, October, and, you know, not only have them be healthy, but able to perform, at, you know, at, to the best of their abilities at that stage of a season, uh, you know, is it hard for guys to adjust to that? Or do you think because they've been around this environment that they're, you know, kind of ready for that? It, it's It's been kind of crazy for me to be the analyst of this team, you know, my first two years to see where I was coming up and someone like a David Wright, when you talked about a starting everyday third baseman, this is a guy who had to play 160 out of 162 games. That meant you were the starter. You were the everyday guy. Um, Sandy and the rest of the coaching staff and the, the way that they're trying to work this out because they have such a, a, a veteran group of players and they have some players that again a Wilmer Flores who needs to find some swings in there and you have to find a way if 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 David was healthy and Reyes had to play in multiple positions but you want to be able to kind of give guys you know a a day off and and be able to rotate I have a nice rotation of matchups and you know playing the lefty righty matchup you know guys who have had success against certain pitchers get them in the lineup Um, just trying to have more of a rotation so that you're not having to play guys like uh, Cabrera and you had Walker last year who played I think the first 90 games they played 88 and 85 out of the first 90 games so that might have been a little bit too much it, it, you know you could see that how they wore down and they each spent time on the DL because of it um, now you're looking at it where you want to get that healthy rotation of, of getting guys playing time and keeping everybody fresher and I think you're going to see the value in that and um, it, it's it's the team concept where you're telling a guy who may want to, you know, who's a free agent next year, wants to play 160 games and put up the biggest numbers that he can to try and get paid. These guys realize that you don't get many opportunities to win a World Series championship. And the best way to do that is to maximize what you can bring to the table every day with this team, with the players that they have in place now. And um, they're comfortable with playing 130 games and maybe you know, feeling a lot fresher in the days that they are in the lineup rather than, you know, dragging through two straight weeks of playing and, and you know, that bat speed suffering and making errors and causing the team to lose games. Yeah, yeah, no, and, uh, you know, it's not to harp on injuries and the potential for them, but I think one thing we saw, especially last year, but I think generally over the years, uh, you know, there's this perception among Mets fans that, you know, the team, maybe the team isn't doing its best in terms of addressing injuries or maybe that they, you know, somehow uh, know more than the team's medical staff or what the front office is deciding to do. Why do you think that perception exists? And is, you know, is there something that Mets fans should maybe understand a little bit more about what goes on behind the scenes when it comes to those sorts of things? 
Yeah, it's tough because everything gets blamed back to Ray Ramirez. You always see that all over Twitter. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, he, anytime there's an injury. The, the, the poor guy gets booed on opening day, typically. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't matter. But yet you you would think if it was really somehow his fault, how would he be the longest tenured Met after David Wright, honestly? So um, I think when you look at it, it it's these guys have been training. You, you go from being with a different team. You come over to this team. There's a different way of training. There's a different way of getting prepared for a season and maintaining through a season. For some guys, it works. For some guys, it doesn't. Um, you know, and injuries, if there was a way to prevent them, please, we would have figured this out a long time ago, and I'd probably still be playing rather than talking about baseball. Um, but it, it's really unfortunate that they take, you know, they take the brunt of it all. Um, but the fans, of course, uh, they get frustrated with it. They've seen it. I was on that 2009 team where we had 14 guys have season-ending surgery from for something each one a different thing we had backs hips we had shoulders we had knees we had everything um and you know even with all the injuries to the team last year they still were able to find some diamonds in the rough and you know you look for the positives uh, you pulled out a lugo and a gaselman who are going to only make your team even better this year um you know renee rivera was a nice find they got him for free they signed him as a minor leaguer and you know you really have confidence in him when he's in the ball game it's not just your average backup this guy had you know one of the low i think the second lowest uh catchers era in all of the major league last year the guy knows how to call a game and guy knows how to you know knows how to uh, maximize what he's able to do uh, out there. He's not trying to, you know, win the starting job. He would love to have the starting job, but he's not trying to win the starting job. He knows that the one day he goes out there, he's going to get the best out of his pitcher and try and, you know, do the things that make him a winner or a winning asset to this team. Um, I think all the pieces just fit so well. And now that you look in, in the health side of it, these guys are as well prepared as any team I've seen. And they've even, you know, tried to take a little bit more off of them by not putting too many strenuous things early on in spring training, the extra throwing, the throwing to bases, the, you know, the, 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 the players running bases, you know, just to, uh, you know, start running bases a little early. They had, you know, waited till closer to game were starting up and they had an opportunity to do it that way. So a little tweaks to the program every year. And uh, this year, I think uh, it's proven tremendous results. It's been a pretty uneventful knock on wood uh, spring training. Yeah. And I, I think that's uh, it's a nice point for them to leave Florida and get ready to start the season on. Uh, Nelson, thanks again for coming on. We're looking forward to what you guys do at SNY over the course of this season. Again, everyone, uh, 11.30 in the morning on Monday for opening day, there's going to be plenty of coverage with Nelson and the rest of the oh, SNY yeah. crew. Uh, and good luck with all that. Another season in that role and uh, hopefully we'll get to chat with you again soon sounds good thank you very much all right chris we are just days away from opening day it's uh, it's starting to feel real has it sunk in yet for you that the season's about to start it has and i think i'm excited uh you know i mean i always am this time of year but i don't know it feels very real not just the fact that opening day is almost here but the fact that this team is actually good yeah <laughs> for the third year in a row yeah this is usually when things start going wrong in in my life <laughs> when things have been good for a little while so uh you know i'm 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 cautiously optimistic but i, I think it's gonna be a fun year um so the biggest news i guess right now out of mets camp is actually a lot of news today today was a relatively 
busy news there. The last couple of days have been, but today it was oh, sorry. Actually, I guess yesterday it was announced that uh, Jerry Smilia would be suffering, not suffering, serving a 15 game suspension for his domestic violence charge. Um, a statement was released from both Major League Baseball and from Familia, essentially saying he has also completed counseling and that he is going to be a mentor for young players, hopefully teaching them about, you know, not doing this sort of thing, which, you know, we could talk about the fact that that even needs to be taught as as a problem, but well, you can move on from there. Uh, it also said that uh, the statement was read that he did not threaten or physically harm his wife. So uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means that actually happened that night. I'm also not all that interested in finding out. I'm more interested in talking about the very short suspension here and whether you think this is a... Um, not whether it's a good thing or not, because I, I think that that's that's uh, that's leading the witness a little bit here. But what, what do you think about the 15-game suspension, Chris? Well, it's just a little bit odd because you're in a, a spot here where if none of those things occurred, what exactly is he being suspended for? So, you know, if they're saying that their investigation didn't turn up any evidence that he actually caused or threatened physical harm to any other person in his home at that time, okay, you know, that's that's what they found and concluded. So is this 15 games for being drunk and belligerent and breaking things? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's just sort of where I go with what I'm, uh, I'm trying to figure out what their logic is with it because, you know, Aroldis uh, Chapman, Jose Reyes were not, they didn't have cases that went to court or, uh, you know, brought them up on, on charges in that capacity. Uh, and they got long suspensions, relatively speaking. Compared to familias, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everything about this is odd to me. Yeah. So it's not. I, I'm not arguing that he shouldn't have been suspended. It's just sort of a weird thing, you know, where you can. I don't know. This one it feels even stranger than the Reyes one. That that one felt a little more cut and dry, uh, in terms of what happened. Obviously, that didn't bear itself out in a court of law. Right. Uh, right. He wasn't convicted of anything, but you know, there, there were, there's a little bit more to it just from what was publicly available to have a sense of what happened and then make a determination about what you thought about the suspension from there. So, right. Yeah. I, I just don't know. It's if something significant did happen, then it comes off as light. And if it really was, he broke a door and didn't do anything else then, you know, I don't, I don't see where the suspension comes in there. That's not ideal behavior, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, let me preface this by saying I am not an attorney. <laughs> I do not have any uh, legal training of any sort. But this really strikes me as odd for a few reasons. The first being, if this... It, if he broke it, as you said, he, he got pissed off, he broke a door, he broke a window, something like that, that's not domestic violence, necessarily. Like, that's that's an odd 
thing to charge him with if he was just drunk and belligerent. And if he owns the place in which he was being drunk and belligerent, I don't know. I mean, obviously his wife or a neighbor called the police, so it must have been major enough to alert somebody. But domestic violence usually means a specific set of things, right? And this doesn't appear to fit that. So if it wasn't domestic violence, if he was just angry or whatever, don't you think that would have been his public plea from the beginning? That, you know, look, I was arrested under these circumstances, but this is not correct. I did not do this. That never happened. So, he, you know, if you don't say anything about being charged with domestic violence, the implication is that you threatened or hit a member of your household. If he did threaten or hit a member of the household, this is a despicably short suspension. This is a suspension that is, you know, laughable if he raised his hand to anybody in his household or threatened to raise his hand to anybody in the household. If it's not, and like you said, he had an outburst of some kind, then I think that that, I don't want to say this is extreme because like you said, it's not ideal behavior. But I also don't know if losing your temper in your house when you're not harming anybody is a suspendable crime. Right? Yeah. It, it just Every, I don't know. something smells here. It's it's weird. Yeah, and the, the Times a couple days before the league announced what the suspension was, the Times had I think one of the more thorough and it wasn't even that long of a piece, but just one of the more thorough looks at the things that we knew and what was likely to happen in terms of discipline from the league. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. It would, I wish uh, these guys would not be doing things that made these, uh, inst- you know, these these arrests spill over into sports. But it, it is real life, you, you know. Yeah, I, I like you said, it's it's just it's a very strange situation. But I, I think that the. The downside of this is no matter what he did, even if he was, no, how can I put this? If he did anything to threaten or harm his family, this suspension shows that Major League Baseball does not have a thorough and effective domestic violence policy. Right. And, And so... Just on the just on the idea of well, part of the reason that we suspend is to deter people who haven't committed this crime from committing it in the past. That you're going to show them that the league takes this seriously. You haven't shown them that at all. You've shown them the exact opposite that the league, you know, is is taking a pretty easy way out of this. And uh, I think that's pretty despicable, personally. Yeah, I I don't have anything more to add. I I, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, uh. Yeah, people, including baseball players, please don't do this sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not smart. Go outside, get some air. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's. It, I think one thing with sports is that you think of these guys as these. I mean, obviously, they're very athletic, strong, large individuals. Uh, you know, you hear, I, 
I think it, I'm pretty sure it was in like the back of a couple of clubhouses. There's, you know, uh, what's the boxing thing? I'm, you know, punching bags, yeah, that kind of heavy stuff. Heavy bags and things, yeah. Right. Like take out your aggression kind of things. You know, we've seen some players really display it in the dugouts and everything. Uh, you know, there, there, there's sort of that element of the culture of it all that shouldn't have anything to do with how somebody acts away from the field. But, you know, you, you see them, that human side with people who, you know, get angry uh, when they're in front of cameras and everything. So it's not that much of a leap to imagine it happening when there aren't any cameras around. Right. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's a messy situation. But the news for the Mets is that that means that Familia will be available towards the end of April for games. So, you know, um, th- this is going to be our pitching preview, and, and that is, you know, a small part of the pitching preview. Uh, I guess before we get too deep into it, let's just go over the uh, the one email we have, which is going to be relevant in a second here. Uh, as always, you can email the show at podcast at com, And this email comes from our friend Wynn from Nashville. He said, uh, hey, y'all, this week brought an incredible piece of news that I, as a Southern Mets fan, have been waiting for a very long time. Zach, quote, I don't sign the sweep spot, kid. Wheeler is back in the rotation. What are the realistic expectations for his comeback season? Thanks, Wynn from Nashville. So, I, uh, I appreciate a good callback. Me too, yes. <laughs> I, I greatly appreciate a good callback, so thank you, Wynn. Um, well, okay, the, the first thing we have to talk about with expectations for Wheeler is just that you know it was announced today officially that Wheeler will be in the rotation with the injury to Steven Matz. Matz will be uh, shut down for three weeks and then reevaluated. So we're realistically, you're probably looking at, what do you think, five or six weeks before Matz is rejoining the team? Yeah, I would assume, you know, the MRI being clean is very good news. Uh, but obviously there's still some rest and then some uncertainty into what it looks like, what it feels like when he gets back to throwing. Uh, and yeah, best case scenario, that that's not such a long layoff that what he's already done in terms of arm strength wouldn't have an effect or account in that regard, but... He'll still have to build it up, I'm sure. Even if he gets out and throws, uh, I would imagine they'd want him to get at least five or six innings in a extended spring game or, you know, St. Lucie Mets game, right? Before considering putting him back in a major league uh, starting position, right? And uh, so that means that Seth Lugo will also be in the bullpen for the team. So Wheeler has emerged as the uh, as the I guess he'll, he'll technically be the number four starter. In the rotation. Um, yeah. Well, Lugo, by the time you listen to this, it may be official, but Lugo and Montero are both traveling to New York with the team, and then one of them gets to stay. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, Eric, as Eric joked on Twitter today, it's the Mets version of The Bachelor. <laughs> who gets the, uh, what's the, what's the baseball equivalent of the Rose? Who gets the, uh, who gets like the kitty backpack you have to carry to the bullpen? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, the. I th- I think that would be uh, correct. Yeah. <laughs> also, I, I said to him at the time that he, uh, you know, had tweeted that that something about a rose, and there are I was like there are there's a rose thing on that show, right? I can't claim to have ever watched it, but I've seen some 
there's this small segment of baseball Twitter that's like, oh, I'm going to watch The Bachelor. Yes. Ironically. <laughs> so that's how I get my exposure to occasional Bachelor things. See, I am I am blessed with a wife who watches that show ironically. So nice. I, there's occasional Bachelor chat in my household. I've never seen an episode, but, you know, I, I have certainly fallen asleep while she's watched a couple of them. So... Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. This is this is what you're hoping for with the Zach Wheeler question. I'm, I'm <laughs> certain. Exactly. Lots of bastard <laughs> talk. Um, but so yeah. So Wheeler will be the fourth starter, and Wheeler is on a supposed, you know, 125 or so innings limit for the season. So I think any expectation of Wheeler's season has to be looked at through that lens. That even in the best case scenario, he's not going to be pitching a full season for the Mets. Yeah, they, and they sort of tried to walk that back a little today, you know, with saying, uh, well, you know, it's it's, it's a light flexible. Cap. He's he's thrown 185 innings before, you know. It was sort of like this need in the rotation arose, and then all of a sudden, what innings limit, you right, know? Yeah, <laughs> and I I'm not one to harp on, you know. I don't mind when the Mets downplay an injury initially because sports teams do that. I think if you're hyper-focused. And yet you're on Mets Twitter? Yeah, I know. I know. But if, if you're hyper-focused on one team, it can seem that way. But that doesn't really bother me. Uh, but and, and none of these are major issues. I care much more about the moves they make and the overall philosophy behind building the team. But at a certain point, why are they saying numbers in spring training? Right. Like that, why volunteer a specific number? You know, we know that they learned that lesson in terms of the wins a few years ago. Right, right. So why even say it? Because if you don't say it, you can just go to the generic answer they're giving now. We have something in mind, but we're going to see how the season plays out for them. Uh, and, you know, we'll adjust along the way, which is it's reasonable. It's realistic. They could even get away with saying, look, this is not a normal Tommy John recovery. He had his surgery two years ago, so we really can't make a pronouncement yet until we see how the season progresses. Even if that's total horseshit and they have a number in their mind, no one's going to necessarily quibble with that answer. Right. Yeah, I just don't. And then the, the number from Warden is that different from the number from Alderson. I don't know. It's like that scene in romantic comedy where the girl asks two guys the same question and they both answer the other person. Like, you know, <laughs> who ate that cookie? He did. And they both put the other person. Like they're just they're they're clearly caught in the situation here where somebody is not telling the truth and or or they are so dysfunctional that they don't have the same answer within the organization, which is even worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I do know that this is not the first time there's been a mixed message or miscommunication coming out of the Mets. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> uh, but in terms of expectations, yeah, framing it with a realistic expectation that he's not going to throw 250 innings between the regular season and the playoffs is certainly important. Uh, you know, I'm I'm happy that we're here. I'm not happy that it's because Matt's is hurt, but that's like the least surprising news ever. It is. And somebody joked today in our sort of internal uh, Mason Avenue emails about we just have a generic uh, Matt's is injured story, always ready to go. 
It's not a bad idea. No, it really isn't. <laughs> but uh, and we can laugh about it because he's not at this point in time set to miss an entire season or anything. Uh, and with Wheeler, I've been saying for a long time now, I'll believe it when I see it, but it looks like that will happen. We will see it. And uh, in, in that sort of isolated sense, it's very exciting. Uh, you know, we've touched on his career a lot over the years on the podcast. And at the point that he last pitched, uh, it looked like things were going really well. He finished that season in 2014 very strong. Uh, you know, turn the corner might be a little bit of a cliche, but it kind of seemed like that had happened. It certainly felt that way in the moment. Yeah, it, it was It was a guy who had talent that matches up with the kind of production that he was, uh, uh, that he had displayed, where, you know, it wasn't, Dylan G and I enjoyed the ride, but when Dylan G had like the 30 starts with a two point something ERA, awesome. Hey, that's really cool. Seems like a good guy, all that, but it wasn't something that you saw, or let me say, if you were reasonable about <laughs> how you look at baseball, you didn't see that and go, Oh, Dylan G is a frontline starter. Now it was just like a cool thing that happened. So that you hoped would repeat itself in some small way. Right. Or, you know, when it normalized, maybe it ended up a little bit better than you thought. And it, that even wasn't really the case. No, not at all. But, but Wheeler had the, the talent. Uh, so a long stretch of excellence with the stuff that he has was really encouraging. And then it was just two years of nothing. So, you know, the velocity has been good. Uh, I would expect that he'll have some of the issues that he had before he had the surgery, uh, mainly walks. Walks and throwing a thousand pitches that get fouled off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that came into it, too. There was one point during the day today that I thought, uh, you know, in, regarding the innings with him, somebody referenced how, you know, how they maybe would limit innings during the season at some point or whatever. And in my head, I was like, well, he kind of has a way of limiting his own innings. That is true. <laughs> you know, that the biggest complaint was that he never pitched, you know, or rarely completed the sixth. So, I mean, it's silly to me that that's the way that we measure the stress of a pitcher. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. Yeah. You know, just raw pitches seems a little bit more indicative to me. Uh, or even also, pitches under duress. Right. Yeah. So, in in that context, if it is just innings, if he only throws five, you know, that, that adds up a lot more slowly than if he went seven. Right. You know, that's still not quite 30 starts. But no. I think expecting Wheeler to, to give you 30 starts is incredibly generous of your expectations. You know, I, I think that the reality here is that you know, Mats isn't going anywhere. And if Mats is, is not seriously injured, which all signs are pointing to the fact this is not a serious injury, then hopefully you're going to have to find a way to have both Mats and Wheeler give you a fair amount of innings this season. And so it, it makes a lot of natural sense to to talk about their sort of seasons taken as a whole right now. You know, if, if Wheeler is looking really great 
when Matt's is healthy, I don't think you're going to see him be bumped from the rotation for for uh, Matt's to step in there. But I think if Wheeler's struggling a little bit, it's not a bad excuse to you know put him on the disabled list, send him down for a little while. It just you know there are ways to manage the season. We've talked about this in the past. Um, you know there are ways to do this, and I think that the health of Matt's is surprisingly important for how Wheeler's season's going to shake out. Yeah, and I think that ties in very nicely to our uh, our second email. Yes, yes, we got this email as well. Uh, who sent us this email? This was a great email. This um, is from Mikey James. Yes, and I – well, actually, I'll, I'll hold off. After we read the email, I'll, I'll tie in another conversation from earlier. So okay. Go ahead. <laughs> he said, uh, since this upcoming episode is going to be dedicated to pitching, I wanted to run the idea of tandem starters by you guys. It's been said since the beginning of the offseason the Mets are going to have to reduce the work so, workload of the rotation to start the season in order to keep them all healthy and fresh for a potential postseason run. Plus, it's looking more and more likely that Mats will not be ready for the beginning of the season. Bingo. Creating a void in the five-man rotation. It seems most likely options to fill the start of the season are Wheeler and Lugo, Wheeler's a terrific. I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit for the sake of brevity here. Um, makes me wonder why the Mets simply don't put the two together. Get three or four innings out of Wheeler to start a game. Bring in Lugo for three or four innings. Together they make a quality start without taxing the bullpen. Of course, Montero has su- suddenly found a way to put it together right when we all gave up hope he would ever amount to anything resembling a major league ball player. So there's another rotation option. But even with Montero in the rotation, the organization is still trying to keep the innings down for the other pitchers. And once Mac comes back, that leaves Montero, Lugo, and Wheeler uh, as tandem options for the other starters. Or we could even use them as more of an option for a six-man rotation or skip a start here and there. Man, gotta love pitching depth. Always, thanks for your time. Uh, So, I have a feeling both of us are going to be on the same page about this, which is that we love this idea. Right, yeah, generally, yes. Uh, the thing I wanted to reference from earlier, I was chatting with uh, Mason Avenue alum Brock Mahan of this state and Mets history fame, for those of you who read Mets Morning News every day. Uh, and he said something similar to what Mikey said here, just, just you know, swap the names around a little differently. He said basically if he went into a season thinking of Stephen Matz and Zach Wheeler as one pitcher, then you'd be in pretty good shape. So I coined this human hybrid, uh, Stevak Wheelats. <laughs> and I thought I would share that. So yeah. it's, it's an idea that I love. Uh, it's something that I thought, you know, under the guidelines of an innings limit, somewhere between 110 and 120 or 125, based on things that people who run the Mets said on the record. <laughs> Uh, under that, uh, you know, I had looked just sort of brainstorming a way to get Wheeler through the end of the season where he's available when it means the most in September and October. And, you know, that approach would be a couple of short relief outings per week, basically. And then just gradually building and and in the middle of the season, getting to a point where he would be piggybacking, not necessarily with the same guy every time, but the same spirit of it, right? Where you you take three or four innings and say those are Wheeler's innings on a given day, and the starter only needs to go, you know, four or five, however you want to play it. It's something I love, 
as a concept, and I don't expect to to see. Even though of it's probably not. a really good fit for this team, where you you know try to distribute the innings. Uh, it's all a little easier to do in September when rosters expand, which is sort of a weird time to be tinkering if you're in a pennant race. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, can you say that name one more time? The, the, yes, uh, Stevak Wheelats. Okay, if anybody listening to the show works in the Mets team store and you make a <laughs> Wheelax uh, jersey, I'll take an extra large. What, what size do you want? Uh, large, large. large okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, direct message one of us on Twitter to find out where to ship them. We'll take the, we'll take the jerseys. Thank you for your uh, <laughs> for your uh, t shirt gift to us. Um, no, it's a it's a fascinating idea. It's one that makes so much sense if you're thinking about baseball in a way that. <laughs> uh, let me just simplify this. If you're thinking about it in a way that is diametrically opposed to how Terry Collins thinks about baseball, it just seems to me like Collins is one of these guys who is very reluctant to to embrace anything that that his minor league coaches. 35 years ago would have wouldn't have embraced you know uh even though he works for a relatively saber friendly team you know he is he has shown a reluctance to think about things like on base percentage building a lineup and you know other sort of similar concepts over the years but to me this is the best of both worlds this means you don't have to constantly be messing with Wheeler's um, rest between starts. You don't have to be worrying about him going stretching him out from the bullpen or, you know, putting him into the bullpen and then having to restretch him later. This seems like a way to, once you get to a certain point in the season, and right now, I'm not worried about his innings. It's April, Matt's is hurt. It makes total sense for me to to be doing exactly what they're doing with Wheeler right now. You know, he's in the rotation, and he's... Uh, you know, that's fine. But once Mats comes back, this is a really nice opportunity to start playing with this. And if you start it in June or July and you develop a way, this is a way to rest your starting pitchers, everybody's better off in the long run. The only person who's not maybe is uh, Wheeler, if Wheeler feels, essentially if he feels slighted by this, if he feels like this is a knock on his talent, which I think just takes good management and honest conversations to show that that's not the case. I don't know. Yeah. I'm all yeah. for this. Yeah, me too. I'll also be shocked if it happens. Absolutely shocked. Um All right, we're going to we're going to play a little game here with the starting rotations in a few minutes. But before we get to starting rotations, Chris, what's your overall bullpen? feeling for the Mets right now. How are you feeling about the Mets bullpen? Semi, no, cautiously semi-optimistic. <laughs> okay. Walk us through uh, that. Well, I love Reed, uh, and I buy the improvements. I'm, you know, you can't necessarily guarantee a sub-2 ERA. that It could happen again, but if not, I expect that he'll still be very good. Uh, as a pitcher, Familia... You know, uh, so much of the talk has been about what happened off the field, and rightfully so. But and we, we've talked about this a little bit over the offseason. When the season ended, especially the way it did in a wild card game, you know, some segment of Mets fans thought that he sucks. 
And when he's on the mound, that's just not true. So those two guys are right up there. They are not Patances Chapman. And they're probably not uh, Andrew Miller and Cody Allen. But they're not that far below as a duo. Yeah. And that that's a that's a really good compliment. Those those four guys are all outrageously good. Um, so when you're looking at a pair of relievers, and at least putting them in a conversation where they're near that level, I think that's a really good thing. So those two are, are really great. Blevins is very good. You know, you need to see a little bit more against right-handed uh, hitters to buy what he did against them last year. If he's even useful against righties, that would be a, a nice surprise. Blevins and, and Salas, to me, are both pretty good pitchers, you know? Yeah. And and then Robles, we've, we've touched on, I think, a lot over the offseason as well, but it's just a matter of limiting the bad. You know, instead of a bad month, maybe a bad week. Or just a, a you know a sporadic bad outing. Um, so those five guys to me are enough. Two excellent pitchers, two above average, or average to above average major league relievers. Uh, Robles hopefully goes a little bit higher than that, but right now his track record is about average. And then Edgin, I'm just not super high on just the the walks scare me uh you know he i don't think he ever threw quite as hard as people <clears throat> thought he did and that's not to say he didn't throw hard for like an average human it was still <laughs> average 93 94 it's just, that's just not 99 100 territory but you know the, he, he's lost some of that velocity he's you know sits in the low 90s now and that's not necessarily a death sentence. It's just not something I feel super confident about. And then I guess uh, how many have we let Familia read, right? Salas, Blevins, Robles is five. Edgen is six. And then and Smoker. They- oh, right. I'm thinking of the opening day bullpen. That's why I'm getting thrown off. So the opening day bullpen obviously won't have Familia in it. So Smoker, I like a lot. He does throw really hard from the left side. Uh, you know, that that's a guy who um, he's an unknown. And then over a long term, whether it's Seth Lugo or Rafael Montero, who gets that last spot, you know, there's Lugo has shown more at the major league level, but there's still not a long enough track record to determine that he'll necessarily be that good. And Montero, I would say his track record is not long enough to say he, he won't necessarily be, yeah. be that bad. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, I really wish they had signed one more relief pitcher. They signed Tom Gorzolani. <laughs> and I mean, I'm glad Silas and Blevins are back. It would have been a lot worse if they weren't. So I think they're in a spot where it's not outlandish to say, Hey, this bullpen, bullpen could be pretty good. Yeah, but it also wouldn't be outlandish if they were in, you know, contention in June and had to start trading for relief pitchers. Yeah, it's just a little too high variance for me in too many slots. Like there's there's something to like with several guys, and I hope they all pan out. 
and you know some seasons you get a higher percentage of that and some seasons you don't so I would have just liked I don't want to sentence any one individual pitcher to pitching in Las Vegas just because the Mets got better pitchers but I'd much rather have these last you know three or four guys be all fighting for the last spot in the bullpen and then available to come up when needs inevitably arise well let me just tie this back to our conversation earlier there'd be a lot less need for uh you know sort of the, some of these maybe more middling arms if the mets were comfortable with having uh caddy starters you yeah i mean you the, wouldn't the necessarily idea there. need josh edgen in the bullpen and that's not pitching picking on josh edgen but you know, if you had somebody who could take those innings twice a week. Yeah, and if you could really get into a spot where the, that was a, you know, a split of a game between two starting pitchers, then you could operate with a six-man bullpen if it knew it got a turn off every time through. Right. Now, the orthodoxy I, <laughs> it comes into play again. And... You know, I don't know. It's the kind of thing I think the most experimental any team has gotten in that sense was when the Rockies tried to do like the 75 pitch limit for starters. Yeah. And it was just a train wreck. And, and there are a lot of reasons why that was a train wreck, though. Part of it was the pitchers they had going 75 pitches. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it was that. It's, it's cores. You know, that's just a place that they haven't really figured out how to get people to pitch well in. Um, and it was every day, you know, it wasn't a once every time through the rotation kind of thing. It was sort of a weird format every day. I appreciate that they tried it. You know, they knew things weren't going well and they tried something that was very different. Uh, you don't see major league teams experiment too much. So that's for sure. Like shifts are risque, even though they've been around for a century. <laughs> Shifts are so risque, they might be banned. <laughs> well, of all the stupid ideas that baseball had over the offseason, at least that one seems to have died down a little. That's true. And there were some stupid ones. <laughs> yes, there were. Um, any other bullpen thoughts? Um, no, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I will talk plenty about the bullpen during the season. Yes. I I, it's, as Jeff joked, Jeff specifically reached out for uh, his current podcast that, like, you're the only person who enjoys talking about the bullpen. So, <laughs> do you want to come on? And I, I took him up on that. I appreciate this. Uh, if the Mets bullpen is my thing, I, I can live with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I applaud you for knowing your thing. <laughs> you're, you're aware of what your thing is that's good that's good well, uh, thanks. so uh we're gonna play sort of a, a version of the game we played last week where i'm gonna go through the starting pitchers of the national league east teams just sort of number one number two number three number four number five uh, for all five teams and you're gonna tell me who you like in that spot i think this is going to be a very different exercise than last week's was <laughs> i think i know who i'm answering for number one We'll we'll see. We'll see. I I know you're a big uh, Jeremy Hellickson fan. But, okay, so we got uh, Noah Syndergaard for the Mets. Yeah. Julio Tehran for the Braves. 
uh, Edwin Volquez for the Marlins. Edison Volquez, I'm sorry. Uh, Jeremy Hellickson for the Phillies. And Max Scherzer for the Nationals. Oh, man. Hellickson. Is he officially the opening day starter? I know, like... I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I think he is, but I'm not positive. But okay. isn't that insane? Well, if, oh, that is. <laughs> it's, it's just... It would be weird based on a couple of the other guys they have. But in this comparison... I will We're go. going by the way with the, with the ESPN depth charts, just for anyone who's playing along at home. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, this is a shocking revelation here. Syndergaard one, Scherzer two, uh, Tehran three. With a note that uh, I feel like Mets fans have a good sense of how good he is because he's been so good against the Mets. Right, right. Somewhat of an underrated pitcher, generally. Yeah, I, I don't think. know how he's still underrated, but he is. I've matured to the point that I can. Complain about a brave being under underrated, uh, and then the, so this uh, is growing up, huh? Volquez and and <laughs> Volquez and Hellickson, I would put in that order. Okay, I I, I I see no reason to have any beef with that. Uh, number two, are, are we putting Degrom second for the Mets? Yeah, just we'll see. go with the order that they're going the first time through. Okay, so Jacob Degrom for the Mets, uh, Bartolo Colon for the Braves. Um, let's see. I already forgot this guy's first name. It's a, I'm a bad baseball fan. Uh, Dan Straley for the Marlins. We have uh, Jared Eikhoff for the Phillies. And last but not least, we have Steven Strasburg for the Nationals. So in my heart, it's Bartolo. <laughs> but my real answer, DeGrom, Strasburg, um... Hmm. I'll actually say Straley, Bartolo, and who was the other one? Uh, Straley, Bartolo, uh, Eikhoff. Yeah, okay, I'll stick with that. And that, no, officially flip those two. Bartolo, three, out of respect. <laughs> Straley, four, Eikhoff, five. Yeah. Uh, I think... DeGrom throwing the way he's been throwing can legitimately be top five, top 10 pitcher in baseball. And see, I wouldn't that, be surprised to see him do that. And that's the way I feel, but I feel like I'm a homer sometimes. So I might still put Strasburg as number one. Yeah. Fair enough. And Strasburg's better than what his numbers were last year too. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, DeGrom, I, I've turned, from a doubter each year, you know, he has everything he had done was great in his first season, obviously, you know, yeah. wins rookie of the year comes out of that. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. That was really great. I don't know. Like maybe expectations should be a little bit lower Then he does even better in his second season. And then still going into 2016, I was like, all right, yeah, you know, and I don't know. I just wasn't totally on board yet. And then he was excellent until the elbow really started to affect his performance late in the season, and he still finished the season with three uh, three point oh four ERA. Yeah, I'm all in on Degrom. I, I still think I would probably take Syndergaard as the ace of the staff purely by an ERA at the end of the season. But I would not at all be surprised if Degrom ends up being that guy. So, all right. it is it's fun when you had a guy who had the the major prospect type of Strasburg. Which was justified, uh, but still, the guy. The, well, it, the guy it was like it was that. justified and then put through the Scott Boris uh, filter. 
Right. Well, yeah, no, no, I totally true. But to take a guy of that sort of like prospect pedigree and then have Jacob deGrom come in and be like, yeah, you know, I'm as good as you. (laughs) Man, I feel like if you could go back and tell like 2012, what year was he drafted, deGrom? Um, baseball reference. <laughs> My only complaint about the, and I could probably like get something figured out to have this open automatically. I have no complaints with the redesign. I'm able to find game logs. I know that might have come up on the broadcast during yes, spring training. It certainly did. <laughs> but you have to click to get the draft and school and all that info. Yeah. Uh, which is my long way of saying it was 2010 when he was drafted. Okay. Yeah, so if you, if you told like 20, 2012 Brian that Jacob DeGrom would be this good, I would have laughed in your face. Yeah. Was anybody even talking about him then? Um, Let me see. In 2012? Let's say going into 2013. Sure, I'm just looking okay. back at our own top 25. Uh, oh, we did. We sorry, it was a top fifty back then. Rob, with all respect, was a crazy person. Yes, if he's listening, I think he would be okay with me saying that. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so on that, when we had a top, okay, uh, in tw- going into twenty thirteen, we had him twelfth. Okay, which was a spot behind Chikini, a spot ahead of Plawecki. So that was, yeah, that that was something. I guess 2012 was the breakout year in the minors. Yeah. Just looking back at the blurb of that. So, but even still, see. even you know, having him number 13 on the 2013 Mets uh, top 50 is a world away from what he actually wound up being. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's incredible. Love it. Love it so much. All right. Uh, that brings us to the number three starter spot. So this is Matt Harvey for the uh, the good guys. We have uh, Jaime Garcia for the Braves. Can't believe that's still a thing. There's uh, some really bad pitchers in this division. Yes, there are. Uh, uh, Tom Kohler for the Marlins. Uh, Clay Buchholz for the Phillies. And uh, Gio Gonzalez for the Nationals. I I quibble with this depth chart, with, with how they're ranked, but that that's a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, how you so making this? Wait, wait, the, okay, so it's Harvey. Um, Harvey, just, Gio, yeah, uh, Clay Buchholz, uh, Tom Kohler, and uh, Jaime Garcia. Man. I'm, well, okay, we're going to start with a big surprise. I'm going to put Harvey one. <laughs> I think I understand the concerns. I think he's good enough that even if he's not what he was, that he can be better than everybody <laughs> else in this. Yeah. I hate Gio Gonzalez. Uh, just not, uh, I don't know, not not my guy. But I, I think it's Harvey Gonzalez, as, even though I, I don't have a particular taste for his work, um, and man, the rest—I don't know. Alphabetic, say, alphabetical order. I'd say Kohler, Buckholz, Garcia. Yeah, yeah. Kohler, I feel like is like decent enough. Yeah. 
Like, you know what you're going to get. Is it, the, is it the definition of a cromulent pitcher? Yeah. Like, a, a contending team could have him as their fifth starter, and it wouldn't be the end of the world. Right, right. You know, he's made 33 starts, 32 starts. Uh, hasn't gotten over 200 innings, but, you know, middling strikeout rate, maybe a little few too many walks and home runs, but a, a guy who you could not embarrass yourself with at the back of a rotation. I mean, Jaime Garcia is basically a husk of a human being at this point, isn't he? He's been injured forever. He's been... I don't know how that guy is still the third starter in the Brave system. It is crazy that he's only 30. That is insane. Holy shit. You're serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll be 31 in July, but that's still so, by, so, so by baseball I, I am, ages. I am more than four years older than Jaime Garcia. <laughs> I would have bet you he was pitching when I was in high school. My yeah. goodness. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he had the good, the, you know, 20 starts. Uh, so that abbreviated season in 2015 was really encouraging. But then he was just bad last year, you know, and he was he was hurt and I don't know, not awful, but just not great before 2015. So, yeah, there's just not there's not a ton to love here. And this is the cautionary Matt Harvey tale because he had the same surgery, correct? Uh, Yeah, I believe he did. I forget what year he had it in. I feel like there was a. I feel like there's been more than one stop along the way, which you could also say for Harvey. Yes. Um, yeah, it was 2014. So that, that wasn't that long ago with the thoracic outlet surgery. And then he had, but he had other issues before that. Yeah, I forget what they were. He never missed an entire season. Like he pitched in the big leagues every year. In two thousand nine, I assume he was just still in the minors, but he pitched in the big big leagues every year. It's pretty impressive, actually. From twenty ten to sixteen, despite despite having at least that surgery. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to uh, number four. So we'll go with Zach Wheeler for the Mets. <laughs> We will look at uh, our old friend R.A. Dickey for the Braves. Um, Wee and Chen for the uh, Marlins. Vince Velasquez for the Phillies. And uh, Tanner Roark for the Nationals. Okay. So this is... So the this, ESPN death charge a little weird. No, it's totally fucked up. It's, it's really, it's not a good system at all. So I think in this, I'm, I'm finally breaking from my pattern here. I think I'd go Roark, uh, maybe Roark, Velasquez, Wheeler, Dickey, and uh, whoever the other one was. Uh, who was the other one? Uh, Chen. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I think I'll, I'll stick with that order. Obviously, I hope that Wheeler ends up higher. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily the biggest believer in Velasquez yet. He did some things last year that had people very excited. I think early in the season, Fangraph said that the Phillies had 60% of their next contending rotation on the roster, which was a very premature thing to say. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll stick with that. 
I would not be surprised if Wheeler wound up first or fifth. I was going to say the exact same thing. Uh, also, I just want to say that Ari Dickey still holds a very special place in my heart. Yes. Oh, if if shit hits the fan, I want Dickey and Cologne back on this team. Oh, me too. Me too. That and inevitably, be... I don't know why Kelly Johnson didn't sign somewhere so a team could trade him back to the Mets this year. <laughs> that is true. Uh, one of my fantasy baseball teams has a Cindergard, Dickey, and Cologne on it. So that's the uh, holy trinity. It, it really is, and the Mets could be the Mets could make that a reality for us by the end of the season, guys. Come on, they could. How great would it be if the Mets win the World Series with Ari Dickey and Bartolo Cologne on the roster? Yeah, I mean, at that point, like get Pagan back to. Oh yeah, you know, at least in September. Is Pagan signed yet? I don't think so he hadn't signed as of a couple days ago yeah probably not then it's very weird especially because he had a good world baseball classic yeah he looked good there and his he was never terrible in no, his major no, league seasons perfectly passable as a fourth or fifth outfielder at this point in his career um i right. guess that should make us feel a little bit better that nobody's hooked jay bruce right like <laughs> that is true Angel Pagan was available for only money and is arguably a better player and still doesn't have a job. So that that is true. This is a weird outfield market, man. It is. It's really really weird. All right, and last but not least, we have Robert Gazelman, number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't know. To be fair, that this ESPN depth chart could have Tom Seaver as number five for some team. So uh, that's true. All right, so Gazelman number five, or, or do you want to go with Matt's here? Huh? No, uh, let's just go with what they've got. Okay. So, Gazelman. Right. So, Gazelman number five. Um, <laughs> uh, is he really the fifth starter for the Braves? Mike uh, Fultonwitz? Is that how it's uh, pronounced? I think it's Fultonevich. Fultonevich. Is he really the number five starter? I think so. I'll, let me double check on roster resource. Okay. Yeah, they, they have the same. They have the same order, too. Okay, well, that's crazy. All right. So, Gazelman Fultonevich, this is a great last name category. Uh, Adam Conley messes that up. Uh, Aaron Nola and uh, Joe Ross. Okay, so it was two good last names. <laughs> so, I guess I would go, obviously, I said Gazelman one. Yeah. Um, Nola two, Ross three, and then Conley Fultonevich. That sounds about right. I could swap those last two and not really care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously there's uh, the the tragic reason that the Marlins rotation has no great pitcher in it. Right. But behind what would have been Jose Fernandez's spot is still a group of pitchers that are not inspiring. Yeah. I mean, if you look at their depth chart here and you move everybody down one, it's a little bit more palatable, but yeah. not that much more palatable. Right. And unfortunately, this is the reality of the situation. So, yeah, their their rotation is it, – it looks really bad. And the Braves and Phillies, you know, with all due respect to Bartolo and – Mr. Dickey. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's do this real quickly just with the top two clo- um, relief pitchers for each team. 
Yeah, sure. So we got for the Mets, obviously. Uh, we're gonna do them as as a pair here, not as not closer, and then you know um, relief ace or whatever. So we got uh, Familia and Reed for the Braves. We have Jim Johnson and uh, Arroyos Vizcaino for the Marlins. We have AJ Ramos and Brad Ziegler for the Phillies. We have uh, Gomez and Hector Neris. Gene Mar Gomez and uh, for the Nationals, Sean Kelly and Blake Trainin. So I'm returning again. I'll go familiar read. <laughs> yeah. One Ramos Ziegler, though, I think is actually not that far off. I think th- that's a pretty good combo. Yeah, really? I-, I don't know if I have that much confidence in Ramos. I like Ramos, but I don't know if he's familiar level. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I- I'm, but you know, it- they're both guys who I could see being above average, like yeah. well above average. Yeah. And relievers. especially compared with the rest of this division too. Right. And then the Braves, Vizcayano is good, but Johnson, eh. Um, so I'd actually probably, but the Phillies are being weird with it too, where it's it, like Norris is the better pitcher. And then, uh, and then who? Um, the Nationals. Uh, the Nationals five, but yeah. like for sure. And I don't like Jim Johnson. And I'm not crazy about what the Phillies are doing, but I would say Phillies three, Braves four, Nationals five. Yeah. The Nationals, uh, maybe it's coincidence that all over the last few months they've tried to get things done in Washington and they failed. <laughs> I don't know. There's no politics on this podcast. I'm just saying. They're in the capital, and they tried to get some things done that they set out to do, and none of them happened. I, I wish I could name like the sixth most important person in the Nationals front office and make a joke about them testifying for immunity. <laughs> but I, my knowledge of the of the Nats front office is not that deep, and we're not doing politics in this podcast. Right? So, no, no. I'm talking about the baseball team that had some goals and didn't meet any of them. Right? Of course. Uh, the Redskins can fall into that category too, maybe. Well, yeah, perpetually. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so there we go. That the works. Capitals are good. Yeah, the Caps are good. Uh, Wizards. I know so little about the NBA outside of the Knicks failures. That... Yeah, same here. Yeah. Same here. All right. Well, okay, so so overall, it sounds like we're pretty bullish on the Mets pitching this year, which shouldn't be surprising to anybody right. listening. Uh, but I also think that. If things go well for the Mets, it shouldn't even be close in terms of pitching staffs. Right. The Nationals have some very good starting pitchers. You know, that that's like the next closest thing in the whole division in terms of just an overall group compared to the Mets. But, yeah, if it's an everything-goes-well kind of year, you're right. It shouldn't even be close with them. Yeah. Well, this has to make you feel good as a Mets fan that – the pitching is going to be there, hopefully. And uh yeah, next time we do this, Chris, it will be we'll, we'll be in the regular season. What a world. Yeah. I'd yeah. like a the shorter off season from two years ago again, as opposed to the slightly longer one. Yes. Agreed. So uh please make that happen, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Why did I say that tentatively? Yes, make that happen, Matt. <laughs>
I'm Brian Wright, and welcome to a new segment on the Amazing Avenue podcast, where we'll present a specific topic and count down the top five with regards to Mets history. To keep with this theme of pitching, here are the top five single-game Met pitching performances. Number five, David Cohn against the Philadelphia Phillies at Veterans Stadium on October 6, 1991. The final day of a forgettable season for both teams. That should be an easy excuse to play out the string. But all that was on Cohn's mind was a string of Ks. The right-hander lived up to his billing of being a strikeout pitcher many times over in his signature Met moment. Cohn fanned the side in the first, second, and fourth innings. After six, Cohn's K total had reached 15, while having allowed just one walk and two hits. With his club, with his, with his club comfortably ahead seven to nothing, he was able to reach back and go for the record books in the ninth. Cohn promptly recorded punchouts of Kim Batiste and Mickey Morandini, the latter giving him 19 and a share of the Mets' single-game record with Tom Seaver. Only a ground rule double and a game-ending ground out prevented him from matching the major league high of 20. Almost 18 years prior, it was John Matlack spinning a masterpiece, although this gem was on a much larger stage. Number four on our list came in Game 2 of the 1973 National League Championship Series against the Cincinnati Reds at Riverfront Stadium. The Mets' backs weren't exactly against the wall, but it could have constituted as a must-win game, especially considering the opponent. The Reds posed a lineup featuring a bevy of Hall of Famers. It was as close as you could get to Murderer's Row during the 1970s. But that didn't phase Matlack, only a year removed from his rookie campaign. A day after Tom Seaver suffered a tough luck loss in the opener, Matlack followed with a two-hit shutout as New York prevailed 4-0. For all the Red Stars, the two lowly hits came off the bat of unheralded Andy Costco. As for the heralded middle of the order, the quartet of Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, and Johnny Bench went for a combined 0-for-16. It turned out to be a vital win in a best-of-five series that would go in the Mets' favor. Seaver's luck was much better on April 22, 1970, and a list of great Mets pitching performances without Tom Seaver is like a museum of art without a Picasso. There are so many stellar outings to choose from. It's far easier, instead, to determine which one had the most impressive finish. And that came against the San Diego Padres, and is number three on the list. The light-hitting Padres did little to invoke fear in many starting pitchers, especially one of the best ever. Seaver wasn't unnerved by an Al Ferrara home run, or a single by Dave Campbell, as that would be the sum of the Padres' offense on this day. And as dominant as Seaver was over the first five and two-thirds innings, his greatness reached historical levels over the final three and one-thirds. By fanning each of the final ten San Diego batters, he raised his strikeout total to 19 for the game. At the time, that matched a big league record. The ten straight strikeouts, however, is a record which stands to this day. Seaver, Cohn, Dwight Gooden, and Nolan Ryan all had come and gone through the Mets system with great degrees of success but had thrown no hitters for other franchises. And the Mets, for all their star power on the mound, had yet to have a no-hitter. That was until June 1, 2012. Johan Santana, a former Cy Young winner himself, battled arm trouble for nearly his entire tenure in a Mets uniform, but found the magic for nine innings against the St. Louis Cardinals. To be fair, this didn't come without a touch of good fortune. Carlos Beltran appeared to have a sixth-inning hit down the left-field line, but it was called foul. Replay, as you know, came a couple years later. 
despite five walks and a pitch count that surpassed 130, more than Terry Collins would have liked, Santana hung tough and got David Freeze swinging for a finish that was 8,020 games in the making. So, what could top a no-hitter? A perfect game, of course. Well, for Tom Seaver, on July 9, 1969, it was a perfect game for eight and one-thirds innings. Seaver was the lead miracle worker in the Mets' rise to the top of the National League East, posing a serious threat to the first-place Chicago Cubs. But Seaver certainly proved on a jam-packed July night at Shea Stadium that it was talent, not fate, fortifying his overwhelming command. With 25 consecutive Cubs retired and just two outs away from immortality, the legendary Seaver, who struck out 11, was done in by the unlikeliest of victims. Jimmy Qualls, with just 11 big league hits to date, and a player who would accumulate just 31 for his entire career, got a clean single to left center, putting an end to Seaver's hopes of perfection. Nevertheless, it's the greatest pitch game in Mets history, and fortunately, the dreams of a World Series were just around the corner. folks that does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you so much for listening we always appreciate your listener emails so please keep those up email us at podcast at amazing avenue audio.com you can also visit visit the site at amazingavenue.com where we have all sorts of news analysis everything you need to get ready for the season we have there also check out amazing avenue on twitter facebook and instagram at amazing avenue Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, in your podcatcher of choice, or download the show directly from blogtalkradio.com. And as always, you can follow us all on Twitter. I am at Brian is a nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Uh, who else on the show this week? Brian Wright. Brian Wright is at Brian Wright 86. Uh, both of us spell Brian with an I, which is the correct way. Sorry, Brian Renzi. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Hopefully by the time you hear this, the Mets have won their first couple games. And uh or rather, rather, the next time you hear us, the Mets have won the first couple games, and we're having some happy recaps. So thanks, and for the first time in a long time, I can say this and really mean it with all my heart. Let's go Mets. <laughs>